It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's Word. Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, we are making our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew here. And last week, we studied Jesus' teaching on lust and adultery and sexual sin. And so it's not surprising that Jesus' discussion now moves to the question of divorce, seeing as it seems somewhat like a natural progression. What was surprising is when I found out a few weeks ago that I would be the one preaching this text. Because in all seriousness, this text and this issue of divorce and remarriage is a very difficult topic. And I've wrestled this week a lot with this text because I feel like I'm trying to balance two things that seem somewhat incompatible. Because on the one hand, I want to to amplify the value that God places upon the marriage covenant. But on the other hand, I want to be very sensitive to the reality that many of us here today have been impacted either personally because of a divorce or because of the impact a divorce has had in our lives. And so, as I say, it's been a very difficult text to prepare for. Some studies show that as many as 8 out of 10 people have been affected by divorce, either directly or indirectly. And so divorce is a subject that is extremely nuanced and emotionally charged. And so it's been a challenge because... For some of us this morning, you are curious to hear what I'm going to say that the Scriptures teach about divorce and remarriage. But for others of you, you are curious for different reasons. Because you're curious to hear about whether or not what God says about your divorce or your loved one's divorce was biblical or not. But no matter our posture this morning, we all must recognize the very complex nature of this issue. And while we may be tempted to want to somersault over this text out of ease, God's spoken into this matter, and we do good to listen to Him and ask the Spirit to help us benefit from it. So let's do that this morning before we jump into this text. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, I come humbled by the complexity of this text, but also recognizing Thankfully that this text and your word and the delivery of it does not depend upon man. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now, that you would minister to our hearts through this difficult text, that you would show us the glorious truths of your word, and that we would be changed and transformed by them. We pray this in the powerful and matchless name of Christ. Amen. Now, as we look at what Jesus has to say regarding divorce, I want us to do so by looking at three ways that Christ addresses the issue of divorce and remarriage. And so first, we'll see how Christ elevates the marriage covenant. And then secondly, we'll see how Christ exposes the sin of divorce. And then lastly, we'll see how Christ gives exception to divorce. So first, how does Christ elevate the marriage covenant? Well, throughout our study in the Sermon on the Mount, we've said that Jesus has not only come to fulfill the Old Testament law, but he's come to uh, put it up to a new level, to raise the bar. 
And that is no less true, this pattern, when we come to this topic of divorce. Because Jesus is providing principles in order to help teach his kingdom disciples and to understand the effects of his lordship in our lives that demands us to view marriage in a radically different way than the world around us does. Now, these two verses here in Matthew chapter 5 are hardly the sum total of what the scriptures speak to, uh, of the nature of this topic of divorce. And so, we're going to look outside of these, these two verses a little bit to see what the scriptures speak to in relation to this idea of, of divorce and remarriage. And so if we turn to Matthew chapter 19, if you want to turn there, we're going to be there for a little while this morning. Uh, This is a companion passage to our text here in Matthew 5. It's a more fuller picture of what's going on in this dialogue that Jesus is having with the Pharisees uh, and scribes of his day. And we see that the Pharisees uh, were wondering if it was permissible to divorce one's wife for any reason. And they weren't really... Concerned about what, where Jesus stood on this issue necessarily because it was well understood in the first century Jewish community that divorce was permissible. But they were out to paint Jesus in a bad light and to try to catch him in a trap in this discussion. And as a wise, good teacher that Jesus is, he doesn't answer the question directly, but rather he, he uses the Old Testament scriptures to show the nature of marriage that God ordained in the way he intended it to be. And so he appeals, going all the way back to creation, to Genesis chapter 2 that Don read earlier. And we see in Matthew 19, verse 4, he says to the Pharisees, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, he said? And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so we see that Jesus appeals to the uniqueness of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman in covenant together. See, once the marriage covenant is established, there's this joining of two flesh into one flesh. And so even the marriage ceremony and the idea of sex that was designed inside of marriage, these are visible signs pointing to invisible realities that are true. And so just as real as the rings that husband and wife wear and the documentation that proves that they are married and joined together are real, so is this union of flesh between husband and wife. See, husband and wife, they leave their respective families behind, and this new family now takes precedent over every other relationship except to God. And it's God himself who joins husband and wife together, and no one should separate this sacred union. Now, we're all involved in a variety of different relationships in our lives. We have relationships with people that we work with. We have relationships with people that we go to school with. Uh, We have family relationships with parents, children, aunts, uncles, cousins. But none of these relationships have the the intimacy, the uniqueness that was designed for the marriage relationship. See, God has so creatively and so uniquely designed men and women in terms of our, our physical and our spiritual and our emotional needs that it's only within the context of the marriage relationship that this blends together into this oneness that God is talking about. See, human marriage is the earthly image of God's design and His divine plan. Since God willed for Christ and the church to become one body, so he willed for the husband and wife 
to reflect this pattern in marriage. And we have a clear picture of this from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Again, going back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we read there, the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And here again, we see the intimacy of marriage and how the sexual union expresses this oneness that we were taught last week in the preceding passage. Because sex has the bond to connect husband and wife in soul as well as in body. Now, if you're married here or you've been to a wedding ceremony, you know that vows are exchanged in the ceremony. And these vows are made in front of God, before God and in front of witnesses, family and friends that are there. And these vows typically go something along the lines of, I promise to be your loving and faithful husband or wife, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. But I wonder if you've ever noticed that these vows are given in the future tense. Because these are promises to love into the future when the marriage relationship gets difficult and gets challenging. See, just as in Christ, the gospel is God's vow to love us, even when we're unlovely. And so the husband and wife are vowing to love one another, even when the challenges and difficulties of marriage hit. And these vows are to be carried out until death do they part. So now as we come back to chapter 5 and we see Jesus here, he's acknowledging the tone of the day and how they were viewing divorce. And he says in verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But then in verse 32, we see Christ elevating the marriage covenant. And he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And what Jesus is saying is that anyone who divorces his wife apart from sexual immorality is at fault because they're causing their spouse, their wife, to commit adultery if she remarries. And then he further explains that the man who marries a divorcee is likewise committing adultery because he is marrying someone else's wife. Because that bond cannot be undone. Well, the Pharisees were interested not in really what Jesus had to say. They wanted to know the loopholes. What was acceptable to be divorced? What were the reasons they could use? They're coming at it from the totally wrong perspective. Because Jesus is concerned with the sanctity of the marriage covenant and upholding God's design for marriage, the permanent nature for which he created it. Next, we see Christ expose the sin of unbiblical divorce. Now, after the fall of man in the garden, God's intent for marriage did not change. It wasn't as if God said, okay, you messed up, you sinned against me. If you have struggles in your marriage, you want to get out and find somebody else, I'm okay with that. No, his position on divorce has never changed. God hates divorce. God hates it so much that he even says in Malachi chapter 2, the Israelite men were illegitimately divorcing the Israelite women. And so they went and placed their offering on the altar, but God wouldn't honor it or accept it, and they were confused by that. And God says to them in verse 8 of chapter 2 of Malachi, he says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And we need to feel the weight of God's hatred for this sin this morning, regardless 
of the common and cavalier nature that our culture embraces about this idea of divorce. If we go back to this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees again in Matthew 19, we see that the Pharisees were not too satisfied with Jesus' response. And so they continued to press him further. And they said, okay, well why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and then send her away? See, the Pharisees were appealing back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, the Mosaic law that he gave that Don read earlier, because the controversy in that day was the interpretation of the phrase, some indecency, in verse 1. I'll read it again. Moses says, When a man takes a wife and he marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and then writes her certificate of divorce. See, during this day, there were two rabbinical schools of thought that interpreted this phrase very differently. The more uh, liberal Halil school of uh, thought said that this word could be interpreted very loosely and could mean just about anything was grounds for divorce. And so something as trivial as someone's wife burning dinner could be grounds for divorce. If they spoke in a way that seemed disrespectful to the husband, to his parents, her in-laws, they could divorce and sue for that. Or if they just found someone they thought was better looking, they could pursue the certificate of divorce. These trivial reasons were used as grounds to separate this union that God had connected and brought together. But now on the flip side of that, the more conservative Shammai rabbinical school said, no, it's actually a more narrow interpretation dealing only with sexual misconduct short of adultery. Because adultery was punishable by execution under Mosaic law. Well, Jesus, hearing this, he responds to their question, but he first brings clarity to what Moses was teaching on and what he was referring to in Deuteronomy 24. Now, Jesus doesn't argue that Moses didn't allow for divorce, but he reframes Moses' teaching to put it in its right context that the Pharisees were not getting. Because he explains in verse 8 of Matthew 19 that the reason that God grant, or that Moses granted, excuse me, that that Moses granted these certificates was because of the hardness of human heart. Moses was granting this because of human sin. He was giving a concession here. And if we read Deuteronomy 24, those first four verses, Moses uses this stater pattern of if this happens, if that happens, then only can this happen. And understanding this pattern is very key for us to understand this provision that Moses was making. Because the thrust of the passage is the prohibiting of remarriage of one's own divorced spouse. See, by granting these certificates, it helped men not make these hasty decisions to divorce their wives on trivial matters. Because if they, he divorced her and she remarried, he could not regain her no matter what. It was severed because of that divorce certificate. But not only that, Moses, in giving these certificates and granting this concession was providing protection for divorced women who were often abused or given into prostitution so that they could have a clear path to remarriage. It gave dignity and value to women who didn't have dignity and value in that day, especially if they were divorced. And what we see here is that even in the midst of human sin, God is caring for the weak, for the careless, those who cannot care for themselves. Because this is God's nature, to care for the broken who cannot fend for themselves. So Jesus is correcting this divorce-on-demand mentality that was becoming prevalent in his day 
by elevating marriage to its rightful place. And he corrects the Pharisees when they said that did not Moses command these certificates of divorce. He says that Moses never commanded divorce, nor did Moses encourage it. It was reluctant permission at very best. But then Jesus, once again, harkens back to the created order in Genesis 2 to remind them of God's design for marriage. He says in verse 8, he says, But from the beginning it was not so. See, he was saying that even though Moses gave these concessions, you have to remember this is not the ideal. And what's crystal clear from Jesus' teaching is that God's intention and design is for the permanency and exclusivity of the marriage covenant between husband and wife. He raises the standard of faithfulness in the marriage covenant above the standard of the Old Testament law. Because there's no such thing as divorce before the fall. It was inconceivable. God intends marriage to be a commitment only to be nullified by death. But now, in our culture, and including some within the church, would say that these words of Jesus are archaic and they are so out of touch with today's reality. Marriage has become so trivialized today in many cases that it's hardly more than a provisional sexual union that quickly dissolves once the luster and the passion of the relationship is gone. In almost all 50 states, there's some type of uh, divorce, uh, no-fault divorce. And even in some places, there are places you can drive through and get a divorce. It's that convenient. And so the covenant of marriage is now more like the convenience of marriage. I'll love you and I'll stay committed to you as long as things go well and I'm fulfilled in this relationship. But if not, I can always bail and I can get a divorce. No big deal. And the problem is, is that divorce is often tied to the sentiment of love. But see, in the scriptures, they don't appeal to love as the principle for maintaining the covenant of marriage. No, instead, the scriptures teach that God has joined husband and wife together and has called them to a lifetime of peace and unity. And this is key for us to to hear this morning and remember. It's the covenant of marriage that sustains the love in the marriage relationship, not the other way around. And we get that confused too often. Marriage is grounded not in the emotion of love that I have for my spouse. It is grounded in the practice of love that I display in my commitment and fidelity to the one that I've made vows to until we part by death. See, divorce on unbiblical grounds severely complicates sin. It does not cure sin. And it gives this illusion that if I can just move on from my spouse, then my problems and issues will be changed, and I'll be better off. But the reality is, is it creates a greater mess with long-term baggage that we don't see coming. And not only is there devastating consequences between the husband and the wife in the relationship, but actually there's there's carnage and impact that is far more pronounced and widespread to those around who are impacted by this sin. As I said earlier, some of you know this to be true very acutely because you've experienced this firsthand or you've been a part of the fallout of a divorce close to you. Christ has exposed the sin of unbiblical divorce, but lastly, Christ gives exception for divorce. Divorce is always a result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. 
So we see this example in Jeremiah 3 in the Old Testament where Jeremiah is calling the Israelites back to fidelity after they've rebelled against God. And then God says to them, He says, I sent her, being Israel, away with a divorce of decree. God divorced his adulterous spouse only to pursue her back to fidelity. And so if God can divorce, it means that not all divorce is sinful. Going back to verse 32 of our text, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. See, divorce is permitted in extenuating circumstances. Jesus permits divorce if a spouse is guilty of marital unfaithfulness. And the Greek word for sexual morality here in in verse 32 is the word porneia, from which we get our word pornography. And porneia is this idea of fornication and chastity, prostitution, and other kinds of unlawful intercourse outside of the marriage covenant. And when we look at it inside the marriage relationship, porneia means marital unfaithfulness. It's illicit intercourse that is stirred up and involved either in adultery or homosexuality or or the like. And in the Old Testament, these type sins and offenses under the Mosaic Law were punished by stoning to death. The marriage ended because of this sin, not because of a divorce certificate, but because of the one whose sin was put to death by stoning. But in the New Testament, in Jesus' day in the first century, under Roman law, it was very difficult to get the death penalty for sins like this. And so divorce was now substituted for the death of the one who committed the sin. And we see that Jesus gives exception and allows for divorce and remarriage when one partner has been unfaithful in the marriage. But we must not misinterpret this to think that God is commanding this. The only other exception that we see in the scriptures where divorce and remarriage is allowable is on the grounds of desertion of an unbelieving uh, spouse. And if we have to go to 1 Corinthians 7 to see what Paul says regarding this. And beginning in verse 8, Paul says these words. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. Far Far it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So Paul says... If you're a widow, if you're single, it is better to be single and remain a widow. But if you need to be remarried, then go be remarried. And then he continues on with the marrieds. He says in verse 10, To the marrieds I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. This, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Again, Paul says, if there's a separation in the marriage, they should seek reconciliation. But if they are divorced unbiblically, they should remain single and not remarry. Because even though legally they may be married to another person, that divorce should not have happened in the first place. Again, Paul continues on to the rest of his audience. In verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord... Paul's meaning that Jesus didn't say this himself, but God no less gives this command. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul, again, his advice to the believer who is married to an unbeliever is to stay married to them. The reason is is that the unbeliever and the children could be influenced by Christ in the life of the believer. Too often we kind of think about the negative impact of this, of negative influences. But here Paul is saying if your spouse doesn't want to leave the marriage and wants to stay married, share the love of Christ to them so that he or she and your children might come to saving faith in Christ and repent and believe the gospel. But if the unbeliever doesn't want to remain married and they have already deserted emotionally or physically, let them go. And then you're free to remarry. Now, even in these two exceptions where divorce is permissible, reconcile, reconciliation is still the ideal that God has. Divorce is to be the last resort and option after every other attempt has failed. And see, often... It's too easy for us to minimize our own sin within the marriage relationship while at the same time maximizing the sins of our spouse and thinking that they're the one who's causing my dissatisfaction and heartache. And many people are looking for a justification to get out of a a hard or a less desirable situation, thinking there's something better out there, that the grass is greener. And in marriage is where things are tough and they get hard, Many people are trying to find, harder to try to find a way out of the marriage than actually trying to find a solution and a way through whatever difficulty and problems that they're having in their marriage. So what we learn from Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19, as well as the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, is that divorce is permissible on two grounds, for sexual immorality and willful desertion. Now in situations where divorce is permissible then remarriage is permissible. So if one spouse dies, then they are free to remarry. Likewise, if sexual immorality and desertion are the uh, issues in the, in the relationship, there's free for that person to remarry. But even though this concession has been granted by God, we must see that remarriage is not always the best and wise thing to do. Great wisdom and thought and counsel must be sought in situations like this. Now, I realize that some of you, after hearing this, may be thinking, okay, so if I've illegitimately divorced and I've remarried when I shouldn't have, what do I do? Well, first I would say stay married to the person you're married to because we don't respond with one sin with the sin of another. But secondly, I would ask, have you humbly repented of your sin before the Lord Jesus and sought his forgiveness? Have you seen how your sin grieves not only the heart of God, but those around you have been impacted by your sin? And then I would say, go and seek forgiveness from your ex-spouse, from your parents, from your children, from others who have been influenced and affected by it. But all the while remembering that no sin is greater than God's grace. See, divorce is not a private issue. It concerns the health of and witness of Christ's church. Because divorce within the church communicates something false about Christ and His church when a marriage covenant is broken. 
Because Christ's covenant with his bride is never broken. But thanks be to God that we have a bridegroom who wed himself to an unfaithful bride like you and I, sinners, knowing what kind of spouse we would be. See, although he knew that we would be faithless, he remains faithful. And although he knew that we would commit adultery, that we would play the harlot, he doesn't forsake us, he doesn't leave us. And even though we stripped him naked, hung him on a tree, broke his body and spilled his blood, he sought no other. His love never wavered. Christ is committed to his bride because of his covenant of grace and is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. For those who have sinned in this particular area, let me remind you, it is possible to fail to glorify God in this particular area or any other area of your life, and yet in the midst of that wreckage, to glorify Him in new and different ways moving forward. And that should be a comfort and encouragement to each and every one of us because the playing field has been leveled. For Paul says in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Not one of us can throw the first stone. So for every scar and every wound that we have from self-inflicted sin, we have a God who is in the process of bringing about redemption for the glory of His name. Let me say a few things to a few different people as we close here. If you're single this morning and you desire to be married, I want to urge you to take very seriously those that you date and those that you are interested in. I want to encourage you on the front end to ask very difficult and tough questions about the person that you're interested in. Does he or she show evidence of saving faith? Are they a believer in Christ? What kind of fruit do I see in this person's life that they're growing in the grace of the gospel? Is this person desiring to serve the Lord Jesus in whatever vocation God has called him or her to? And then remain sexually pure until the day that you do unite yourself to another in the bond of marriage. And you are free to enjoy God's blessing and gift to you in marriage. But above all, wait. And while you pursue Christ, let Him be your contentment and your satisfaction. Until He brings you a spouse in His time, in His way, and if He so chooses. For if He has called you to be single, He is and He will be enough for you. And you can rest in that. Now these are questions that typically dating couples, young dating couples aren't asking, but they should be. Because it's far better to ask these tough questions on the front end instead of being five, ten years into marriage and realizing that you and your spouse are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. On totally different pages with one another. If you're married, it is vital that you nurture your marriage relationship. Pursue one another by growing in the gospel. Pray for one another and be consistent and intentionally engaging in one another's hearts, sitting down to see what God has been doing in the other person's life, seeing how you can encourage them, how you can speak the truth of the gospel into their hearts. And make it a point, whether it's once a year, twice a year, get away with your spouse. 
If you have children, leave them with someone so you can get out and intentionally spend devoted time together growing your marriage. Be committed to serving one another and communicating through each and every difficulty that you will face in your marriage and with your family. Well, maybe your marriage is on life support and you're contemplating moving on and divorcing. Let me plead with you to seek help and wisdom immediately before making that decision. Even if you have grounds for divorce, seek wisdom and exhaust every other option first before doing so. Because where you may see a hopeless marriage, God can transform and renew both you and your spouse and restore that marriage to places you never thought could happen. The gospel is big enough to handle any and everything that we face in our marriages. Lastly, if you're a believer who is sinfully divorced and remarried when you shouldn't have, let me say this to you. Come to the foot of the cross and receive the mercy and grace that your Savior provides you. See, adultery and unbiblical divorce, while it is sin that must be repented of humbly, it is not the unpardonable sin. There is mercy when you repent and seek His forgiveness because the Scriptures tell us a broken and contrite spirit the Lord will not deny. Call on God to make good to His promises to be a faithful and loving husband. That's the picture that we have in this meal that we're about to partake of evidenced here of his love for us. And amid all the complexities surrounding this very difficult subject, may we seek God's wisdom to apply these principles in each and every situation with great humility. And as the body of Christ, may we value, may we preserve, and may we uphold the marriage covenant at all costs, even in the face of a permissive culture. And where others have fallen to or suffered divorce, may our response not be one in the church of self-righteous judgmentalism. But rather, would we seek to share the sufferings of those affected by divorce, that they might know the restorative power and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you knew full well kind of spouse that you were marrying yourself to and uniting yourself to and yet you committed to us all the way to the cross and Lord I pray for those who have experienced divorce or who have experienced the fallout from it that you would be an encouragement to them and remind them that in humility and humbling ourselves and repenting of our sin that you forgive your children because you have washed us with your blood Lord, I pray for our marriages here at Zion that you would strengthen them, that you would have husbands be the leaders that you've called them to be in the home, that they would reject the passivity that is often so ingrained that they would lead courageously in the gospel. And Lord, would you grow husband and wife together? Would you reconcile in marriages that are on the brink and that are suffering? Lord, would we see that our problem is not out there with someone else, but it's in with our own hearts? And would we repent and seek you to restore us. And Lord, may our marriages be a testimony of your faithfulness to us so that it might be a testimony to our community around us to call people to fidelity and raise the bar in a culture that is so dismissive of relationships and marriage. Lord, again, thank you for your grace to us that never stops, that never runs out. 
We plead for that in Christ's name. Amen.